Jonathan Miller sat down with moderator Ada Brown Mather for a one-on-one interview in April of 1986. I'm Hope Clark, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce Jonathan Miller. And this is a very nice thing for me to have been asked to do, because I have to introduce an honored countryman. So that's really very nice. Um, I suppose you first hit the world, and I suppose hit's a good name, uh, with Beyond the Fringe, which uh, came from your Cambridge days. Well, it was a, it was a, uh, a postponed byproduct of my Cambridge days, because uh, when I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, I appeared occasionally in this thing called Footlights, which was a, a sort of undergraduate show, rather like the Hasty Pudding at Harvard. Um, and I came to London in a, in, a, in a couple of shows that the Footlights did, uh, and they were rather successful in London. And I think the, me- the, the memory of that performance was still around when someone was trying to put together a show for the Edinburgh Festival. I see. And then he was, so, look, he was looking yeah. around for people who played. So, and so I was in one of those. So that was how it all started. But you see, by that time, I was a doctor. Yes. So it was, a, it was an interruption of a, of, was a, of, yes. of a career. I was regarded as sort of, in a sense, as, as, a, as a disastrous falling out of a cargo door of an aeroplane <laughs> which took a lurch and, and, and precipitated me into the theatre without my really intending to be in it. I, I'm yes. perfectly happy to do it from time to time, but I never intended to be in it permanently. But having fallen out of a cargo yes. door without a parachute, I, could, I yes. couldn't get back. Well, I was thinking that you must have done something other than beyond the fringe when you were at Cambridge, since you did, in fact, become a doctor. Well, yes, I spent, a lot, I spent, I spent all my time. I only did I, all my time being a doctor. Yes. My, my entertainment was uh, being secretary of the Philosophy of Science Club. Uh, and um, the only other thing I... I did, and I suppose that here, up in, 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 at, at a distance of 3,000 miles, I can divulge the secret, since it's already been divulged in the English press. I, I would, uh, the most important thing for me, I think, in my, life, my time in Cambridge was not the theatre in any sense, just an just, just occasional amusement, but I was a member of a society which has since become notorious uh, because of Anthony Blunt and so forth, which was called the Apostles, which was a group of people who used to meet in the M. Forster's rooms every... Sunday night and we talked, you know, uh, philosophy and literature and so forth. And uh, it, it became the most important thing in my life. That um, it was a group of friends um, who had inherited the, the ideals and, and um, uh, sort of notions of our predecessors in the society. And the predecessors have been all the Bloomsbury group. So, and meeting in Forster's rooms, we, as it were, touched the hem of that garment and. Uh, it was a notion of, of friendship and seriousness made uh, r- sort of relievingly frivolous. And uh, uh, it, it was, it, 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 I looked forward every day, every day of the week to our Sunday sessions in Forster's rooms. And that really was the most important thing that happened to me in Cambridge. And the footlights and the, the theatre was something very much up on the edge, which I did after, at the end of the 
at the end of the year when the exams were over. Um, and then we came to London with these shows. Yes. But most of and the then time... Came, and then you came to uh, America. Well, you know, long before that, I was in, L- in London working as a doctor. I was, I was, I, uh, in Cambridge, I, I, most of my time when I was in the theatre, I slightly shunned, because like all medical students, one entered almost any social group, one's hands reeking of rancid human fat, mm-hmm. because uh, <laughs> one would be dissecting. <laughs> and uh, um, <laughs> there used to be these terrible things... <laughs> there were tea dances at a, cafe, at a cafe in Cambridge called the Dorothy. And uh, there was a great shortage of women in Cambridge in those days um, because there were very much, uh, very many fewer undergraduates at that time, and apart from a few um, foreign girls studying languages. Um, the only girls one ever met were shop girls, and one got to meet them at these tea dances at the Dorothy. And medical students were the pariahs of these tea dances because they came, you know, hands reeking, those scrubbed, smelling of Lysol and fat, you see, and uh, these girls would uh, tolerate one's uh, advances. Well, perhaps we'd better get on with your career, or we're never going to get to O'Neill. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we have to get to. Mm. So then, um, so we leave the doctor part up <coughs> yes. for the moment. Well, best to do yes. that. It's very embarrassing. And, uh, and go on with your uh, productions. You've done uh, an, an enormous amount, so I can't go through them all. But it's, uh, let's remember that you've done an awful lot of Shakespeare, yeah. and that you've done Shakespeare with the National, and you've done many plays with the National Theatre, yeah. and, and uh, you've done Ibsen and Chekhov mm-hmm. and uh, and the list could yeah. go on. And then we have to remember that now, uh, for about 10 years, we've been doing opera, yeah. very vividly. And, it's, uh, it's about 10 years now. Yes. And you will travel all over the world doing this. Well, I do most of my opera in London, because I like working in English, and although... Uh, you know, there are certain losses when you do it in, the other, in anything other than the original language. Certainly when you, when you have the master libretti uh, uh, of Da Ponte and Boito and so forth, I think that what you gain enormously uh, by being in your own language is so uh, vast that I prefer, to, I prefer to produce and direct in English. Mm-hmm. But you travel all over the world, don't you? No, I, I, I tend not to. I'm going, oh. the, the, the first, I've, I've worked in Frankfurt. Um, Rather disastrously, because um, I, 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 I mean, I'll tell you stories about my horror stories of working in Frankfurt. Um, and I'm about to work in Italy for the first time. I'm going to, to work at the Maggio uh, doing Tosca. And uh, in a way, I rather dread it because it's much more fun for a director who, to speak in English to people who are talking English and to people who are going to perform in English because the whole thing actually then is directly understandable to everyone who sits in the audience who also speaks English. I think there's an enormous affectation about opera in the original language. Um, I don't think that anyone, unless they're absolutely bilingual uh, or they know the libretto off by heart, is really understanding the thing moment to moment. And since in the case of Mozart and Verdi you have master dramatists, um, and the things are plays with, uh, in a musical form. If you don't understand what people are saying, and you're getting a very generalized understanding of it, mm-hmm. uh, I think that you're losing really the purpose of the whole enterprise, which is drama on the stage, musical drama. And musical drama requires you to understand phrase by phrase what, what someone is saying. Well, now we must get on to it. To right. Uh, so then we, we must mention, however, your work on television, because we've done um, the Shakespeare series yeah. a lot in that. Mm. So now then, we can come to this, this, this yes. and this is uh, very exciting that you're here in America now for this thrilling event in the American theater. Well, so it, it's terribly exciting for me, although it's very frightening, because uh, here is a play about which there is an enormous 
um, the strong opinion. There's a lot of received dogma about what sort of play it is, about what genre it uh, belongs to. And uh, it is conceived and seen and cherished as a masterpiece. And very often what happens when things are seen as masterpieces, particularly when they have this emblematic role as the masterpiece, the, the leading standard by which almost all other uh, claimants would be judged, uh, you're up against trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, people have views about how it could be done, and particularly when there were famous heroic inaugural performances, which, uh, which, which, as it were, set the standard. Um, so, so, can you tell us how uh, all this came to be? Did you particularly want to do O'Neill? Did you particularly want to do Long Day's Journey into Night? No. And how did you get a sim? No, that would be interesting. It was an accident. I mean, well, practically all my career has been an accident. Um, it's, it's always been unsolicited invitations at moments when I was actually doing something else. Um, I had actually given up. I was, I'd been out of the theatre for three years. I was back doing medicine again, or I was doing research. And I was over here on a lecture tour. And um, Roger Peters, who's one of the co-producers of the show, was apparently lying in wait like some sort of tarantula in the, um, amongst the foliage of the palm court in the plaza. And uh, as I passed across the lobby, he leapt out at me and, and, and said, what would you do, how would you cast Long Day's Journey if you were doing it? And, and I said, well, I, I, I would like to see someone like Jack Lemmon uh, play James Tyrone. I think something to, to give us a, um, a change, really, to, to, uh, to mobilize the work. Uh, and I said, actually, that's rather a good idea. And I said, it's such a good idea uh, so that I would actually think of coming back and doing some more work in the theatre if I could ever think oh. that he would do it. And I didn't think any more about it. I just went up, on, up, up to my room and prepared to leave the next day for a lecture. And three days later, Jack rang me and said, um, Roger Peters told me that you'd be interested in my doing it. And I've always wanted to do it. And so it became rather a serious thing. I had to take it seriously then. I couldn't say, no, 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 I don't want to do it at all. It's just ridiculous. No, it's just a, the effect of the foliage in the, in the background. Um, and uh, so one thing led to another. And then gradually we put it together and we went to see Manny Eisenberg, um, who saw it as a, as a, uh, you know, as a possible yes. venture. And, uh, but then we set about casting it very slowly and very carefully. Um, and by that time, I was thinking rather hard about what sort of work it was. Yes. And so, in fact, it really drew you out of your... Yes, it did. Yes. Time. But then I am totally a, a, a very seducible creature, you see. Um, I mean, I'm, if I'm doing one thing and someone whispers into my ear, do you want to come out and play? Um, yes. Yes, well, I come out and play. Um, well, will you talk more about the choice of Jack Lennon? Because clearly he's not... Uh, the conventional romantic uh, actor that we were, were led to believe James um, O'Neill was, no. and uh, all the well, other things about this do. I, I realized that O'Neill said, can the sentiment at one time about something, and I thought that was a great phrase. Perhaps that's what you were... Well, one of the things about, which I'd wanted yes. to do. Also, you see, I think that there are very interesting things that happen to plays about 30 years after their um, um, inaugural yes. performances, and that is that they start to, they start to drag their anchor, yes. thank God, um, because... If they remain attached to the to the biographical anchorage, yes, yes. which uh, from which they took origin, um, what happens is a dogma starts to yes. accumulate around yes. them about about the extent to which the particular performers are or are not realizing the original person yes. upon whom the play was based. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's actually rooted in this autobiographical uh, truth, <laughs> and that anchorage becomes a, a sort of preemptive and determining factor, then 
the success of the play depends entirely on whether or not you're producing the life of O'Neill. And that seems to me to make the play really rather trivial. Mm -hmm. If the play is to be of any interest, as Chekhov's plays continue to be of interest, it's because, in fact, the story is in general of interest. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about it is really about is, is, is the life of someone in the theatre and the life of a family and the life of uh, Irish Americans who are finding it difficult to retain their national identity as they become Americans. Um, whether or not it's about James O'Neill seems to be really very uninteresting, in fact. Um, we know that, for example, Chekhov's characters are based on people that Chekhov knew. Um, but if our enjoyment of the piece depended entirely on whether, in fact, they were modeled on, the performances are modeled on Chekhov characters, then you'd have this extraordinary um, ritual reenactment uh, and a, a replication of an inaugural performance which would fossilize the work. You have to mobilize the work. It has to lose its, its, its anchorage in its biographical uh, origin. So I wanted someone who might or might not have been a great actor. We have no idea whether James O'Neill was in any way. I mean, he was said to be. And, and, well, yeah, if you actually listen to records of those guys, you know, mm-hmm. listen to Booth, for example, on records, uh, one has one's doubts. Um, <laughs> because uh, a great actor is a different yeah, kind of person. A different kind of person, person anyway, yes. Anyway. Um, but you hear this sort of cud-chewing, mm-hmm. going right through the recordings, and on and on and so on, but I very much doubt if we would concede mm-hmm. the claim. Because um, we have to conceive great actors in another kind in a totally of way. different way, anyway. Yes. Um, and what seemed to me to be interesting is what is rather interesting about the character of Willie Noman. It's, it's the type. It's the idea of not being at home. It's the idea of being on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, that very American business of being on the road and the hotel life, which is absolutely the... the it's a sort of central emblem of American life, the hotel, the bellhop, the life, the one-night-stand hotel. It's there in Elliot, in, in the preludes. Um, it's, it's there in Dreiser. The, the, the notion of the hotel, being on the road, on the move, mm-hmm. um, and, the, and the way in which families fall apart when fathers are on the move. Whether or not he's a great actor seems to me to be relatively unimportant. What really matters is that he's in the theatre and that the theatre is a rather destructive life if, to your family mm-hmm. when someone is, is mm-hmm. given a sort of recognition which the other members of the family are not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I really wasn't interested in whether he was a heroic no, great no, actor, quite. but yeah, just simply that he, that he was a, a guy who yeah, was in the theatre. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. And I think the metaphor is much more interesting than the reality. Yes. Now, could you talk a little about um, the dialogue, um, this overlapping dialogue, which was so very interesting? Yes. Uh, you know, we've met that in certain plays like Top Girl, Carol Churchill's mm. Top Girls, for example, where it was actually written into yes. the uh, text. But uh, how did you come about doing that? Did it have to be very carefully orchestrated? How, can you tell us yes. something about well, that? Yes, let me start off by saying that I think that any play which is written in the vernacular uh, requires it, as it were, automatically. Mm-hmm. But not to do it is mm-hmm. actually to misconceive the task of directing. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you're, if you're looking at Shakespeare, Shakespeare, the object at which you are looking is a very, uh, is, a, is double. You are looking at the language, and you are looking at the, the world which is represented through the medium of the language. Um, people talk, and therefore there is the topic of the talk, but there is actually the texture of the talk. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in the case of Shakespeare, it is important, an important part of the artwork is the actual rhythm and structure of the language, and therefore overlapping is not possible mm-hmm. anymore that it's, than it's possible in a... Um, a Schubert song. The, the, the actual length is the, 
is the, is, is the artwork, and the, and the lapsed time of it is part of what you're being asked to listen to. But when, you're, when you have plays which represent conversation, conversation is in itself the artwork, not what is being said and how it's being said. Um, and therefore, um, as soon as you get, I think, really to the late 19th century, when, when the realistic representation of talk begins to become a leading uh, concern of playwrights, I think it's your obligation and your duty as a director to act as, a, as an orchestral conductor and to reconstitute the nature of conversation, which playwrights find very difficult to write down. And that's not because um, they're clumsy at it, but because it's for want of a notational, for, for, for want of, of a notational system for writing down how people talk. Um, there is a very rich, complex notation in music, um, the most important of which is the uh, is the one which allows you to represent the actual timing of simultaneous uh, events. You have bars which are placed above one another, so that you have, in addition to melody, you have harmony. Um, so that you read down the page to get the, the, the synchrony, you read along the page in order to get the sequence. Um, now, it's, there's actually no convenient notation for doing that with language, and the result is that language, by default, mm-hmm. is written down in a sequential form, which gives people an artificial sense that that's how things occur. And I first got a very keen sense of this when I noticed many years ago um, actors would come to rehearsal with their parts underlined in yellow. And I realized that this was a profound misunderstanding of the, of the nature of the dramatic art, certainly in the case of realistic plays. Because I had to tell everyone, and I told them this time, look, you have misled yourselves by putting the parts in yellow because it gives you the impression that that's when you're talking and no one else is. And that does not take place in real life. Um, in real life, um, they are, in fact, written as a musical score. And the other thing that interested me about this was um, in the three years that I was away from medicine, I was doing work in experimental psychology, and one aspect of it which began to interest me very greatly was a growth area which has become tremendously uh, busy at the moment, and that is uh, the study of talk, the study of conversation. You know, up till in the last 25 years, with the, with the growth of, of linguistic studies under the auspices of people like Chomsky, mm-hmm. there's been an enormous amount of interest in the in the inner structure, the deep structure of language, in terms of syntax and semantics, the relationship of syntax to semantics and the relationship of syntax to phonetics and so forth. And the result is that there's been an interest in language as if it was a purely abstract entity which did not take place in social circumstances at all. And as if questions of intonation, inflection, and so forth, um, and hand gesture, facial movement, were regrettable pollutions of of a pure mathematical calculus which was best studied in isolation. Now, fortunately, in the last five years, there's a huge growth of what's called pragmatics, which is a study of language in the social context as it is used between people, as it occurs in, um, in the, for the purpose that language is designed, to change someone else's mind, to tell them something, uh, to, to, uh, to, to coerce, to persuade, to amuse, to entertain, to promise, to, and do all the things that we do with language. Now... So the result is that I, I did spend uh, a very long time in university looking at language in its social context with the, with the equipment, which in the, the conceptual equipment that psycholinguists have now uh, provided us. And the result is I came out of this academic world after the, the, the experience in the foliage at the plaza um, with a lot of, of interest in, in the actual, uh, in the dynamics of social exchange. So you mean that this has just happened... 
prior to this yeah. play. Mm. I see. So that really, this is a play that you really worked this idea. Yes, this is really yeah. right. Yes, what happened this is, is that I was... Because mostly you've been working in Shakespeare and plays like yes. that, where it didn't... Well, I began, doing, I began doing it in, inadvertently some years ago when I did a production of Three Sisters in, West, see, in the West yes. End. Yes. And I, I noticed that... I noticed, as it were, because, after the rehearsal, yes. that the play had been shortened by 25 minutes without a cut. Because, you were actually because we were actually doing normal yes. conversation. Now, how do you go about doing this? Can you tell us about that? Do you, do you think about it before, or does it happen? Well... It seemed what we did. We uh, we did, and then this brings up the other thing, which had a tremendously powerful effect on my thinking of this. Um, and that was working in opera. You mentioned that. Um, I had just come from doing three Mozart operas in a row in three months. So therefore, my head was filled with trios, quartets, and quintets, and with the complicated interaction of simultaneous singing. Um, and in the work that I'd done, I'd worked almost exclusively in opera in the last uh, eight years. Um, and we have what you don't have in the theatre, which are musical rehearsals before you start doing the stagings. And I found an enormous amount of interesting stuff came out of doing musical rehearsals. That you start to get inflections and intonations, which you can't get very clearly if you're on your feet already. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something purely musical, formal, um, about just playing the thing for the rhythms of interplay, mm-hmm. which I started to do in rehearsal with this cast, and having started it already with Three Sisters, and um, I really went at it very hard with this, with this cast. And we began looking at this, at the, at the text. I wish I brought one along to show you. And I eliminated from the text all stage directions, including entrances and exits. I simply had speeches written down one after another, so that we, we had the bare bones of what had to be said. And then we started reading it, and periodically I would interrupt and say, look, I think actually, that these speeches seem to actually require someone to come in here. The cue line, which is formally the end of that person's speech, quite clearly is not the cue line to what is being said here. What is being said in this speech is clearly in response to something halfway through the previous speech. Not So start doing what most people do. When people are halfway through a speech and someone's understood it, usually what you can find is that they're nodding them into silence. You're saying, <laughs> what happens that? And you, you over-agree them into silence. Um, <laughs> more often than not, what you do is you interrupt. Um, with all sorts of... Um, uh, um, repair work, which the psycholinguists call remedial work, is that you, you apologize for your interruptions. Very often you say, for example, having interrupted and then being given the floor um, for your successful interruption, you will then apologize for your successful interruption, saying, no, sorry, all I wanted to say was. Uh, no, you know, it's just, it's just that. Um, now, all those little tiny rubbish bits which are in language, which seem like rubbish, and they don't get written down by playwrights because they're rubbish, are actually the core of our social interchanges, because through the medium of these remedial um, tags which occur at the beginnings and ends of sentences, we are actually doing a lot of the business of getting on with one another. And a lot of our talking to one another consists of potential offences. And uh, potential offences have got to be made up for. You have to apologise. And, and here I'm partly influenced yes. by Irving Gottman. Well, it's, it's really saying that it's not really the words that uh, are necessarily communicating. It's the struggle to make the words. Mm. It's the struggle to make the words. It's the struggle to make the sense mm. um, which the words... Um, embody. Yes. Um, and that was not necessary to hear all the words. Not written on, not really at all. Particularly as they, they, they are, as in this particular play, everyone says of everyone else, look, I've heard that 10,000 times before. And it is a play in which the most conspicuous feature of the play is its repetitiveness. Now, people have always said this is a drawback of the play, and that they say, oh, he's so monotonously repetitive. Well, Actually, what? of course, that's I'm what sorry. it's about. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
haven't really done it well. <laughs> uh, I wonder, you know, O'Neill, uh, at the beginning of his career particularly, was always praised for his very um, realistic dialogue, which of course was so surprising and shocking to the people at that time. Now, do you think that he was aware of all this? Because of course he has also been criticised for uh, rhetorical dialogue. Yes, in his, yes. So, to what extent do you think that there uh, was this instinctive in O'Neill? I mean, how is it buried in there? You know, would you like to talk a little well, about I that? I suspect that he's rather a confused playwright in some ways, um, because he's not, for example, as great as Chekhov. And I think we, we, we have to admit that. I don't think he's doing an injustice to say this. I think he is a great playwright, but he's not as great as Chekhov. Chekhov was very pure. He knew really what he knew exactly what he was up to. I think um, O'Neill is puzzled by his role as an American. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are all sorts of businesses. How do you make the claim to, to, and how do you establish a claim to being a member of world literature mm-hmm. um, in, a, in a country which is as young as it is, where in fact you are going to be disparaged for being American? Mm-hmm. So what you get is all sorts of uh, buoyancy tanks attached to uh, work which is otherwise perfectly respectable in its own right, which is a vernacular American stuff. Yes. And then you get quotations and, and, and buoys attached to what he otherwise might think of as sunken wreckage. And so that you get all these quotes from Swinburne and rhetorical purple passages, which I think are his claims to be yes. taken at an estimation which his peers yes. would have forced him to think is the estimation he ought to be taken. Yes. Well, I, um, that was the question that I wanted to ask you. I wanted you to uh, assess O'Neill's position in world theatre and, and indeed... Uh, in American theatre, that, that of course is easy, but perhaps in world theatre, uh, uh, at this stage, can we say that he, he uh, has transcended the uh, the uh, specific into the into the? Uh, I don't know enough about him generally as a playwright to be able to say that. I mean, I'm put off by an awful lot of stuff that he writes. It does seem to me to be sort of, you know very overheated and uh, and, and rhetorical. Yes. Um, and influenced in some ways by models which confuse his own sense yes. of what is the, the appropriate genre in which yes. to place the works, I mean, so that you get Greek tragedy yes. um, behind it. Yes. And I think that somehow there's this curious idea, particularly in America, yes. that Greek tragedy is the standard by which all tragedy should be judged, and that if you don't come up to Greek tragedy, then you've really not got a right to claim uh, greatness as a playwright. And I think that's extremely confusing. And in many ways disfiguring to the enterprise of being a playwright if you are modelling yourself on something which is really nothing whatever to do with your own society. Greek tragedy is Greek tragedy. It's not not our sort of work. Yes, but he did, in fact, uh, place that in the Civil War because he... um, Morning becomes a lecture you're talking about, yes. uh, Because he... wanted some kind of uh, distancing, See, so I he must have acknowledged but that. I suspect, I suspect but I wonder if we're too close. No, but I think he sees Greek tragedy in this as well. Oh, and I, I think see, certainly yes. a lot of the custodial groups I can <laughs> see that this is really Greek tragedy. Yes. Um, I can see from, for example, from Mrs. Gelb's article today in the, in the Times that um, she says of it that you know, it contains the elements of Greek tragedy. Well, of course, everything about human families contains the element of Greek tragedy. I mean, I mean how could it not? Yeah. Um, but you see, the, the philosophers make a very great and very valuable distinction, which is not made enough uh, of, I think, in, uh, in cultural discussion. Philosophers distinguish between use and mention. Now, the fact that something is mentioned uh, uh, does not mean that it's being used in the same way. Now, um, of course, there is, in fact, you know, um, infanticide, or infanticide, the death of infants, um, conflict between father and son, all, and uh, uh, the jealousy of, of, uh, 
of brother uh, and brother, and all the elements that are in Greek tragedy are mentioned in this play, but mention is not used, and they are not used in the same way that they are mentioned in the Greek tragedies, and therefore I think it's a, it's a tremendous oversimplification to think because it's mentioned it must be the same thing. It's not. Um, and I think that one of the great harms that, that befalls any work of art is when it is put into a procrastian bed of a genre to which it doesn't belong. And then, in fact, I think that the, um, the work is disfigured. And I think the work is disfigured by, 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 by attributing a dignity to it that it doesn't have, and by failing, therefore, to give it the dignity that it does have. The dignity that it has is the dignity of ordinary people finding it very difficult to get on with one another in 1912. Um, so those the kind of plays... Uh, perhaps the early sea plays would attract you very much. Uh, well, um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I'm, I mean at, the moment, at the moment, I'm only really attracted by this one. This is the one which really, this is the one which really gives me a buzz because it's filled with real, genuine, slangy stuff. And the thing it reminded me most of when I read it was was the was Sister Carrie, the American tragedy, and the and the pictures of of John Sloan. You know, it has that feeling of Sloan's bar rooms and downtown New York and those early photographs uh, of, uh, you know, of the 19th, early, 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 early 20th century. Um, and it's about real ordinary people. I mean, why do they have to be larger than that in order to be of interest? Yes. Um, they are of interest because they are, they are the people they are. Um, and the conversations are the way that they are. It's about, it's about a rather a rather pathetic family in some ways, rather run-down family, who are having great difficulty in understanding their, their American identity in terms of their Irish identity. Yes. Again, another thing that tends to happen is that there's a, a feeling that it ought to be, belong to some great Irish tradition. Yes. Nothing Irish about it. It's how difficult it is to remain Irish when you're really American. Um, the great remark, which is, is Jamie's remark, when his father says, you know, you keep the filter tongue up Ireland, and, and you know, you're a fine one to talk with the matter, it all over your face. Not when I wash my face, he says. And that's what it's about. It's about the fact that I am not Irish anymore in the way that you understand being Irish. And that you yourself are not really Irish. You, were, you came when you were six. Um, it's, a, it's a sort of an extremely elaborate and painful diffi- uh, problem to cleave to a previous identity at a time when, in fact, you're really clearly establishing another one. That, I think, is the topic of the play, mm. apart from something else which I have to get into. Mm-hmm. It's really, perhaps, the most interesting topic of the whole thing. Well, would you like to get to that topic now? Well, does anyone want to ask any questions first before we get to that? I mean, before I just got I don't... Okay, well... The, halfway through, there was one thing that became very interesting to me, partly because I suppose of my... my family connections with psychoanalysis, and my father had been a psychiatrist. Um, albeit tremendously eclectic one. One of the things which I found very striking about the play, and I suppose, again, my interest in this, sparked by my own past, but also by developments in the last few years in language and criticism, this ugly phrase, narratology, which has become, which I think disfigures a lot of academic life. Nevertheless, it, it reflects an interest in something which is very important, and that is in the process of storytelling and narration. What I think a lot of the play is about, and extreme makes the play extremely interesting, is that it's about um, it's about listings and narrations. It's about telling your story and listening to others' stories and not listening to others' stories. It's about hearings and overhearings. 
It's about tellings and mistellings. And this, I think, is really the topic of the play. It's what it's about. It's about how you account for yourself in terms of stories about your past, how you um, represent yourself to others, how others um, hear you, fail to hear you, and sometimes only hear you when they overhear you. You see, one of the most fascinating things is that um, James Tyrone, at the end, hears Edmund's, uh, hears Jamie's great diatribe only when he's actually sitting on the, on the unseen, sitting on the back porch. He then comes in and gives this rather forgiving account of him, but which he can only give precisely because he has been an unseen listener. And an unseen listener is in a position to more clearly hear what someone is saying because he is not required to be a participant. When you're required to be a participant, your competitiveness, your need to justify yourself is called into existence. Whereas when you sit silently, overhearing, eavesdropping a narration of someone else, you're often in a position to hear more clearly what someone else is saying, when in fact it's not directed at you, and you are sitting at right angles to the line of discourse. And I think that one of the place real fascinations is that through the medium of totally ordinary, vernacular American, mm-hmm. people give accounts of themselves, they tell stories. And I think with this tremendous interest that's grown up in the last five years in storytelling and the coherence of stories and the retelling of stories, and and what's, when stories actually are listened to or not listened to, when they take or when they fail to take, I think this is actually what the whole play is really about. It's how you account for yourself in terms of narratives of your past. And every single person in that play tells a story at one time or another, very long one sometimes. Um, and people say of things, people, as Edmund says to his father, at the moment when his father tells him the story of uh, being in the theatre with Booth, I'm glad you told me that. I understand you much better now. Having withheld that judgment about the story which his father said many times about working in the file factory. I've heard the story 10,000 times before. He then anticipates the story. I actually put in things which is fucking unreal. Had him say, you know, 50 cents a week and uh, whatever it was. Um, Why are there these sudden remissions that occur in listening? Moments when, in fact, you have failed to attend at one moment and suddenly you are wrapped with attention and say... I'm glad you told me that. I didn't understand you much better now. Or previously you said, oh, for God's sake, don't tell me that. I've heard it 10,000 times before. And could you talk something about the, you know, when O'Neill was writing, psychology was was the the new science, Mm. wasn't it? And uh, O'Neill said, um, I could have done all this if I'd never heard of Freud. Of course he could. Well, Freud himself understood this. Freud himself said that we, before the great artists... Yes, and he said there was too much Freud around. But O'Neill really reveals very much in his plays the things that he uh, is afraid to reveal. Could you talk about that kind? I mean, the thing like uh, uh, his interest in death, his uh, feeling about the, uh, the sea and the great womb or whatever that is, yes. and all that stuff. Could you talk about that kind? Well, I think of there thing? are many things which, in fact, are really skillful playwrights who are sensitive to his own inner feelings mm-hmm. and sensitive to what it's like to be around with other people. Um, naturally brings to life things which uh, can be formalized in terms of academic psychoanalysis, but don't need to be if you're writing plays. He understands everything about the conflicts that occur between fathers and uh, and their children, particularly between fathers and their firstborn children, and also about the relationship between firstborn children to secondborn children. Um, The way in which the firstborn children has got necessarily, a sort of homicidal hatred of the usurping second child. Um, you don't need to be a psychoanalyst to know this. You simply have to be a parent or 
or a child or anything to know that it's difficult to live with people who replace you. Um, and I think a lot of what the play is about is about how difficult it is to uh, be replaced by a younger son, mama's pet. Um, and then for you yourself, perhaps unconsciously, as the mother says, you knew very well, went in with, with the room with the baby with, with the measles, knowing that you mm-hmm. could do it harm. Think how awful it is, even if you half know that you will cause your, uh, your baby brother harm, and to, and to find that you actually have caused him harm, and then to find that having caused him harm, to the extent of removing him from the scene, that like a sorcerer's apprentice, another one appears immediately, and that, you have, that, that Eugene is replaced by Edmund. Um, and you are then confronted by two rivals. You're confronted by the actual rival, Edmund, who um, is Mama's pet. You are also confronted by this worst rival of all, the rival who might have been, the person who will never, ever grow old, who will always be the creature who is into whose space is projected by parents and by brothers and by the rest of the family, all sorts of promises. Yes, but how also, how awful to feel uh, <laughs> blamed, I mean, to feel not oh, yeah. wanted. And then to feel blamed, and then yes. to feel blamed, and then also, of course, to feel guilty that you actually have been the murderer. Yes, but I was, no, I was meaning the other way on. I mean, how, how awful to to feel that uh, you had no right to be born, that you're not wanted, because in actual fact that was, really was the situation that happened about uh, uh, O'Neill himself, I mean, wasn't it? Yes, indeed. But that, and I say, as I say, I put on one yes. side. I mean, I think there, is always, there is always the possibility of being an unwanted child, yes. and the possibility of being a replacement child. Yes, he was a replacement. Was a replacement child. Yes. yes. Um, and the, the notion of the replacement child is very close to the thing that Freud talks about when he puts forward the notion of the family romance, the idea of having you mysteriously suspecting that you might in fact be um, uh, an unwanted child who has in fact been placed out on the mountain and, and brought up by other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this is a fantasy which we, which, uh, we all have possibly, certainly male children have, but they might be this unwanted creature who's actually been neglected by his real parents and is now being brought up by someone else, might be a prince mm-hmm. brought up by paupers. Yeah, because the, uh, but then how awful also to feel, as O'Neill did, that uh, he was the cause of his mother's drug taking. Would you like to talk a bit about the drug taking? Well, I think that um, the, 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 it's very, very complicated, all the issues of the drug taking. Um, first of all, the question that you raised about whether you would feel guilty about it. Yes, the sense of being blamed for something which is uh, um, um, a continuing blemish and a shame. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wouldn't have to be drug taking. It would be just simply her being ill. Um, people often point to them, their parents. I mean, particularly in the 19th century, when people were injured by childbirth and often uh, at least debilitated by it, irreversible. Um, how awful to be told by a father or by another brother, "Look, you are the cause of the fact that our mother is weak, is invalid, and incapable." And when you add to that the shame of being not merely invalid but invalid in a culpable way by being someone who, in fact, is taking drugs, then of course you bear an extra burden, which makes it very hard to live. But then there's also the very complicated thing that someone like Edmund might in fact have an affinity with his mother's drug taking, and we've actually discovered this in the course of the inflection over one word in the course of rehearsal. Remember when um, she's, he's having, when Edmund's having that conversation with his father at the end and says it's like a bank of fog that she, which she builds around to hide herself in. Now, in the course of the rehearsal of about four days, I suddenly said, God, I... How stupid of me to have not realized that you ought really to say it's like a bank of fog in which she hides herself. Because he has previously been talking about the bank of fog in which he's been trying to hide himself. Mm. And of course, the fog people. Mm. Um, Edmund, I think, uh, sees him and his mother as two 
uh, fog people. Um, she is ever uh, seeking uh, uh, obliteration and, and fogginess in her drug. He also is seeking fogginess and obliteration and dissolving of self either in the fog or out in the bowsprit of, yes. of, 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 of a square rigour. So there are, two, there are two temperaments in the family as well. There is a, a man, a boy, who identifies himself with his mother in a very eatable way and sees himself as being really an extension of his mother's temperament mm-hmm. uh, and therefore sees himself as a fog person as mm-hmm. she is. And uh, up against this other uh, side of the family, this very male side, outward-going, whoring, um, hard-drinking, mm-hmm. um, who are not seeking obliteration in quite the same way. Jamie's... Jamie seeks not obliteration, he seeks a simple knockout unconsciousness, which is a very different thing. Whereas I think that, that Edmund seeks a mystical sense of, 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 a, um, of a oneness with things. And I think probably that he sees that as being a metaphor of his mother's drug taking. So there's extremely complicated overlaps, guilt for the drug taking, but also a sense of being a, uh, there being an affinity there. That we are the same, we are both fog people. And yet Jamie was the one who couldn't marry and uh, have any kind of relationship because of his mother and the, you know, I remember the, the, he uh, loved the bath water that his mother had had with lovely perfume in it and loved touching it and that's pretty kinky. Oh, well, I think, well, no, I think that it's, it's not kinky, it's very natural and then I think that actually the, 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 the closer um, and more intense eatable relationship is of course, as it always was, was with the firstborn son yes, and, the, and, 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 the, uh, and the mother. And uh, his, he has an extremely complex relationship to his mother. I think that there are two virgin, there are two Marys in this play. Mm-hmm. There is the Mary, there's Mary Magdalene, and there's, and there's the Virgin Mary. The, 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 the Mary, the pure, the maternal, the nourishing, the Madonna, the, Mary, uh, the Maria Lactans. And then there is this other Mary. I thought only whores took drugs, and his mother is both. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that puzzles and bewilders and distresses him, is that he's, he thinks his mother is one thing and he, he's, she is actually another. The, the, and then his mother herself says, I know what he'll do with that five dollars, he'll go up and spend it on the only sort of woman with whom he can feel at ease, i.e. whores. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but, but he then sees his mother as a whore. So he has this very complicated um, thing which tears him apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and... We talked a lot about these Marys who mm-hmm. hover over this play. It's very, very fascinating to me that those two boys never, don't have girlfriends. They only have whores. Mm-hmm. Uh, we never hear of girlfriends. We never hear of ordinary relationships with girls. They don't take out girls. Mm-hmm. She says it herself. You know, you'd have been so different if you'd met ordinary nice girls. They don't have nice girls. They only have whores. Mm-hmm. Well, um, until, uh, until uh, O'Neill's first marriage. Oh, yes. But, 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 but you see, I think entirely about the play. Yes, I, I, yeah, um, um, uh, yes in the play. Yeah, in the play. They have, yes. they, they, they have whores. That's all. They don't mention other girls. It's, um, it's, it's a curious sort of limbo they live in, from which they sally forth to have reprehensible uh, episodes in bars or in whorehouses. Yes. And then they come back to this pure, disabled creature um, who is uh, allowed to be pure, um, but only um, in isolation. Who has no life outside at all. It's a very feminist play. I think it is about how, how damned awful it must have been at that particular time to be in the but you don't want to direct another play? Not at the moment, moment. No. no. I mean, it, it, it depends what comes up. You know, I don't really go seeking for things at the moment. I've got so no. much coming in other areas. But it, um, you tend to do plays that aren't contemporary plays, do you? That's really I spend most of my time doing, doing, yes, doing plays do from the past. Yes, and why do you do what? 
partly because I do love the process of reconstruction. I see, yes. Um, uh, you like the challenge of doing something that has been done? No, it's not that. It's really, I'm deeply fascinated by the instability of plays as works of art. Uh, what I refer to time and again when I discuss this as the afterlife of plays. It seems to me that there is something built into almost all artworks, but particularly dramatic works, that is an intrinsic, emergent instability. That what they are is not a settled business. Um, there are many people who would, who would who spend a lot of effort and time trying to make them definitive. That this is the way it ought to be. Henceforth, this is the definitive uh, performance. This, yes. is, this is what yes. the playwright wanted. Yes. This is what the playwright meant. I don't believe that these are ever clearly identifiable. Um, I believe that plays are unstable, emergent entities who, um, with unfinished biographies. Um, and that what they are is in fact not yet known. And I'm very fascinated by the process of rediscovering or finding things in works of art that we've inherited yes. from the past, which continues their unfinished afterlife. Yes. But uh, in fact, uh, as I recall, you you haven't gone really out on a limb in any kind of productions. They 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 always are really the play. I but you know what I'm saying. Yes, I do, you? but I, yes. I'm, I'm very I mean, glad uh, you should think that um, because you see the funny thing is that I find myself condemned for being two things. On one hand, I'm 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 often thought of being this dangerous vandal that rides with a sort of Scimitar through the uh, uh, through the furnishing fabric house of the drama, cutting things with my scimitar. Um, and the other hand, I'm also an old fossil who never dares to do anything. You see, um, because I don't put things on in skating rinks or um, yes, that's in, what in, I was meaning. Yes, <laughs> we'll talk a little more about that well, because that's really very interesting. Because of course there is this problem of having to do something now because we're alive. Yes. Well, I'll tell you this: I do believe very much in. Uh, I don't believe in, in, in the notion of an author's intention. I think that the notion of an author's intention is itself, is itself extremely ambiguous, philosophically very ambiguous, because what in fact someone meant by what they said uh, is not very clearly identifiable. Um, even when no human conflict would ever arise. Um, <laughs> human conflict arises because there is a hermeneutic problem about what we mean by what we say. There is an interpretive problem all the time about who means what by what they say. Um, if, we, if it was clear, we would not say to B of A, why did they say that? We would go to A and say, what did you mean by what you said? We sometimes do go to A and say, what did you mean by what we said? We then ruminant on their answer, and then go to B and say, do you think they really meant that when they gave that commentary? And very often we find a more reliable account of A's conduct, or indeed of A's account of their conduct, when we look at someone else who can see them from the outside. And in exactly the same way with plays. We can't be certain that an author is his own best guide, or his own best, gives the best account of what he meant by what he said. And very often, he or she has act, um, rights without having explicit access to the sources of what makes them write that. They don't know. This is not because they write in a trance or because they are, as it were, mm -hmm. writing with a planchette, mm -hmm. but because we are all writing with planchettes mm -hmm. to some extent mm -hmm. in that we don't have access to the resources which give us mm -hmm. these inspirations. And it's very often given best to someone who comes afterwards to say, hey, there's an, a there's an aspect mm -hmm. in this play which is not seen. 
For example, I'll give you the example of the O'Neill. I don't think that O'Neill was explicitly aware of writing um, such extraordinary references to Iago in Mongo's journey. Jamie is, is a Iago character and he quotes Iago. The Moor, I know he's trumpeted and put, therefore put money in my purse. These things don't happen by accident. Um, and, but I very much doubt if O'Neill actually could have, if taxed, would have said, that's what I meant. I just think that he created a Iago character, mm-hmm. destructive, always seeing the worst mm-hmm. in someone. Um, he hath a daily beauty in his life which makes me ugly, which is, I think, what Jamie's view of Edmund is. He hath a daily beauty in his life which makes me ugly. I will destroy him. I will pollute him. I will disfigure him in some way. Um, I don't think that O'Neill knew that. Now, that, not because I, it's not because I'm a smart ass and I'm claiming to know more than O'Neill. But we're all smart asses when it comes to other people's conduct. Mm-hmm. We have some sort of insight into, into <laughs> someone because we, have, we, we can see the wood for the trees. We can see around the corner of their intentions. And I think that all the time, I like to be able to see things in the play. But nevertheless, I do believe that there is some sort of generic uh, framework which defines the limits of what, in fact, is not possible that he could have meant. Yes. Um, so that there are all sorts of tricks to which people can resort, which, which start to profoundly disfigure the player. Disfigure it to the point where, in fact, it isn't just simply that he did not what he meant, but that it actually ceases to, um, to deliver the range of, com- of complexities which make the play valuable. Yes, we're talking about plays in, uh, in, general. in general, yes. I mean, I, so that's, the, that's yeah. not the trap that you hope no, to... No, I, mean, I, I, I believe that one ought... It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a waste of time yeah. to go looking for strange tricks in order yes. to justify the play, yes. to make it more modern. Um, and I think that there are all sorts of things that go on in the theatre today which seem to me to be frivolous um, window dressing. Yes. There's a, you see, I mean, there's, and I think it's partly to do with the fact that there's a huge fashion now for the fashionably visual. The visual was never really a very big feature of the theatre, um, and it's become enormously fashionable because of all sorts of things which have heightened our sense of uh, visual chic. Mm-hmm. Um, television, photography, uh, film, all sorts of um, devices which are available, videos and so forth. We can do anything we want to with visuals. We can backlight things, we can bleach things out, we can take out the halftones, we can put in things, we can actually reverse the things, put them into color negative. We can, there's nothing we can't do. And the result is we're bombarded all the time with enormously seductive visuals, which are terribly exciting. And I think that what's happened is that visual chic has invaded the theater. Uh, and people feel that they're not doing plays unless they are actually allowed to do it's something which is really the sort of thing which would sell a video, a pop, a pop video. And I, I just not that I draw the line at that. It's just that I think that it disfigures what is ultimately interesting about plays, which is language and the relationship which comes out between people through the medium of language. And if you're constantly you know, throwing the whole thing into high relief by backlighting it or by setting it in some really bizarre circumstance, um, like a swimming bath or a... Uh, or a a concentration camp, or or the, a space centre, or a jacuzzi. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, I was told recently that someone was about to do a production of the Taming of the Shrew, in which the wooing between Petruchio and Catherine was going to take place in a jacuzzi. <laughs> it doesn't seem to be a very um, important thing to do that, but it will undoubtedly become the discussed uh, mm-hmm. issue. Now, I 
I have translated things into other settings, but I always believe that what one should do is one should look for, 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 for translations which are, in fact, interestingly uh, similar. They have to map onto the things mm-hmm. in the way that, that, that a left hand maps onto a right hand. Um, there are two sides of my body, but nevertheless, there's something analogous of, mm-hmm. uh, about the two, of, of these two organs, and therefore they can be mapped onto one another. There's no point mapping a, a wooing scene on um, a 16th century play into a jacuzzi that takes place in the 20th century. What does it do? It just simply makes the audience who, who um, identify something in their own lives, which uh, is so dismally suburban, mm-hmm. that if they, can't, if they can't somehow see themselves... Um, in, in, in anything other than the medium of a jacuzzi, and it seems to me that their, their moral sensibility is so depraved um, that, that you might not. There's no point doing the play at all. No, they might not see anything about the jacuzzi. Might, is, and, but you see, there's an idea that somehow that the play becomes much more lively yes, if, it's in, yes. if it's in a jacuzzi. Well, much more understandable, which is absolutely I know. But you see, but it's, I mean, jacuzzis themselves are so regrettable anyway. You know. I mean. <laughs> The idea of sitting in a vaginal douche, which seems to be to be so Well, can, can, uh, I read this, the stage directions uh, at the beginning of London's Journey tonight, and I uh, see that you really made a, a new London uh, summer place. You know, very mm. like the thing that uh, he described. How do you go about? How do you well, go about that? Can you talk I about want that to, a little bit? Uh, yes, I. I felt that it ought to be in the place where it took place. Where it took that, place that, you yes. know, that I, that I toyed, toyed with the idea of a jacuzzi and said no. no. <laughs> Isn't that true? I mean, it really, it really looked as if they didn't really yes. live there, that they lived in hotels, yes, yes, which is right. what you... Yes, that's what I, that I wanted to do. Sort of yeah. barrack look. Yes. yes. And, you know, un- comparatively unfurnished, and yes. a, dump, a dump in some ways. Yes. Um, well, I'll tell you there were two things. One of them makes false starts on one thing or something. I thought of a perfectly, a totally realistic thing, going up to New London and looking at Monte Cristo Cottage and saying, and getting it done on the stage. Well, it seemed to me a little bit uh, literal to do that. And also, it would have, in some way, suffocated the work. I thought, mm-hmm. well, it, it, of course it's realistic, but there is something also, as with Chekhov, um, very artfully uh, abstracted about mm-hmm. it as well. Mm-hmm. So there had to be something prevalent yes, yes. in, in, in the setting. Yes. Well, the first thing I thought of, because I liked it so much, and I just kind of intoxicated by its painting, I, I, I wanted to make it look as much like Edward Hopper as I could. And then I realized, actually, there's no way of getting the Edward Hopper interiors um, unless everyone is immobile. Um, but, but what it's to do with? It's to do with people sitting in deck chairs, looking out to sea, and not moving. Um, it's all right for the exterior. You can do it. I did it once with, with a letter, I said. based it on Hopper, on Nighthawks. But, um, so, after a all start, Strangers and I really came to the, to, to the conclusion that there was no point in trying to do it, because you, actually all those uh, Hopper things depend on, on, the, on, the, on all that clapboard and gingerbread and things, and a um, particular sort of light that you only get outside, and it would have become overpowering. Um, so then I began thinking, well, how can I get this thing that will retain the reality, but at the same time abstract it? And then, of course, it came in a flash, actually, for one thing. Um, George Siegel's sculpture. Now, Siegel has these wonderfully um, immobile figures who are very real, nevertheless, and could move perfectly well, um, in very bare uh, formats where there are very detailed representations of walls and of door mouldings and bits of green blind, nothing, nothing else. I said, well, that's what we'll do. So uh, Tony and I looked at a lot of, uh, at a lot of, uh, uh, of Siegel sculptures we looked at some bits and pieces of furniture, and particularly the wall treatments, mm-hmm. the, that tongue-and-groove panelling, 
and those nice dull green shades with one blind uh, thing hanging from it. And I said, well, let's, let's try and build that on a polished wooden floor so that the furniture burns on this thing and the people themselves are very, very palely dressed in, in this black void so that they go outdoors into nothing, um, which is what it's about. I think, okay. Well, outdoors is not, it doesn't really matter whether it's in London any more than it matters whether, whether it's the O'Neill biographer. What matters is that these people are inside there doing damage to one another and they go outside through these wire frame doors and disappear and then come back in again. Um, and so... That was finally the, you know, the decision to get this abstract format, which nevertheless made reference to, yes. to a reality. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I wanted to get pieces of reality which had the same sort of uh, rough <laughs> uh, attack, the texture, that the language has got. I mean, the, one, it's amazing the smack of language that you get from when you know, she talks about Mamie Burns thought I'd gone bug house. A wonderful sort of piece of uh, early 20th century slang. Um, marvellous lingo well the word lingo itself um, and I wanted to get something which was the equivalent in the set fragments of real texture real architectural mouldings of that period and then against blackness as you get in the seagull things and you get that strange the melancholy loneliness of those figures those courting couples in, in stairwells and doorways that you get in the seagull things um, I am tremendously influenced whenever I do anything on stage by by painting and photography. Okay. I, uh, it's almost the, the first thought I have. Mm. I see some snapshot, something of how it's going to look. Um, and uh, I work a lot with, with, I mean, certainly with things from the past, but from, the, from the distant past, I work almost entirely with painting. At the moment, I'm absolutely obsessed with, with Caravaggio. I'm desperate to try and get something. I want to do measure for measure like that, based on Caravaggio. So that painting has a very profound effect on me, and photography does as well. Well, I think perhaps we um, we should ask if they'd like to ask you questions. Mm. Would you like that? They won't mind if I smoke. I mean, they I'm, going, I'm going to smoke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, sorry. Um, you know those those spiritualist things when they when you have the um, when you get a message. That's right. Yeah. It's tap, the, tap, 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 and the glass moves around. And, 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 and that. That's like a Ouija board, yes. 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 Uh, and if, if the planchette is, yes. is a board, yes. Here's a question right. up here. Yes. This is an immensely rewarding picture here. It's so interesting to listen to. But also, it's one of these rare occasions when you said so many things, it's like, ah, I don't know what it is. So he said it better. One of the things that happened with Ah-Ah was the importance of language. I don't go as far as the deconstructionists in believing that, there is, that, you know, that really the, the meaning itself is to- totally arbitrary and that, that, that actually you can do whatever you want to with these things. But I think that I mean, what is so interesting about deconstructionists is that they suspend their deconstruction as soon as they go to the tobacconist. They expect to get cigarettes when they ask for them. 
um, rather than have a very complicated thing about the, the precise generic meaning of the speech act that is here. They say, I, I want some cigarettes. Um, I, so I don't go as far as some of the deconstructionists do. Nevertheless, I, I'm a tremendous uh, believer and follower, in some senses, of Stanley Fish. I, I really do, uh, I'm very interested in his idea of generic instability and the, the idea that, that language is a great deal more ambiguous. The precise status of what we're saying at any given moment is, is not determined and given in the text. The text, in a sense, is a construction of the reader, it's a construction of the social circumstances in which the text is being used at any given, any given moment. And the limits of, of this instability interest me very greatly. But I'm very glad that you mentioned this thing, because I think it's very important. I think there's a disastrous um, uh, isolation of the theatre from the general concerns of, of culture um, as it is going on um, elsewhere, um, particularly in the academy. Um, enormously powerful tools are being forged at the moment, especially in linguistics. In linguistics. I mean, enormously powerful tools. An, un an unprecedented series of, uh, of discoveries and insights um, have been made in the last 25 years, um, which are lying around, I mean, sharpened blades, which can actually make beautifully discriminating cuts, um, and, and they're not being used at all. Um, and the theatre, you know, <laughs> goes on its merry way um, without taking these discoveries into account. Um, now, uh, I don't know, I, I can't think of any way of preparing this, but as soon as you start talking like this in many theatrical circles, then you're talked, you, you, people say, oh, you're being too clever by half, or um, isn't that a bit heavy, or um, um, surely you can do all this by intuition. Well, the fact is you can't. Lots and lots of things cannot be done by intuition. They have to be regularized and formalized and made explicit. You have to actually have programs for, for, for analyzing these things. Um, I just wish the theater would take itself more seriously in that way. Um, you see, I think that in America, particularly, uh, a there was a disastrous uh, 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 influence of psychoanalysis, of a, of a profoundly misunderstood psychoanalysis, a sort of self-inspection, self um, so that almost anything that was thought to be serious in the theatre was thought to be due, thought to be arise from grave introspections of motive. Um, so that you've got all sorts of um, very self-regarding um, self-analyses going on amongst actors about where they were coming from, and where their head was, and all this sort of thing, um, and whether they felt what they were doing. And it doesn't matter what you feel, because you, you're an illusionist as an actor. And it doesn't matter a damn what you're feeling. The matter is, did you convince the audience that you're feeling what you're feeling? Now, Freud saw this very early on when he came and gave those lectures at... Uh, at uh, at uh, Clark, when he said, um, psychoanalysis will flourish in America, I fear. Um, <laughs> and he knew very early on how, how very dangerous this would be, because it's a very, it can be very, very rapidly popularized into a very degraded form of um, Dale Carnegie, how to make friends and influence people, um, through self-analysis. Meanwhile, extremely powerful tools of objective analysis are going on in experimental psychology, which have been scrupulously ignored. And I think it's a very, very sad thing. I think that we could do with a great deal less psychoanalysis and a great deal more linguistic analysis. I think. Mm. 
I think this is this has happened um, in many ways. Um, you see, I think that a lot of what is interesting in Freud is actually uh, what I find very fascinating about Freud are those parts of his thought which are really very like modern cognitive psychology. Uh, you see, in the interpretation of dreams, for example, the most interesting stuff in the depths of that is not the the ideas about wish fulfillment and so forth, but the actual the grammar of uh, of disguise that goes on in dreams, or the, uh, the condensations and displacements and so forth, which actually is, a, is very much the sort of concern that is now going on in cognitive psychology about how memory works. Uh, that's really very interesting indeed. Um, much more interesting than you know, whether these are phallic symbols or not. Or, I mean, it's really all very silly stuff, and it becomes a pile again. Um, it's much more interesting at the purely cognitive level. And I think that the cognitive level is one which is... In, Sadly neglected, and except in the area of structural analysis and, and deconstruction, and those people who are interested in the, the organization of language. Um, I certainly wouldn't have had the, the courage to do what I've done with, the, with, this, with this production of O'Neill had I not been reading, um, well, two people who have influenced me enormously. One is, uh, is Irving Goffman, who, who was really not so much looking at language so much as looking at the remedial aspects of language, you know, the repair, all the apologies, mitigations, and excuses, and so forth, which go on in language. Um, but also, I was looking a great deal at the people who came from the school of Sachs and Shegloff, who have looked at uh, what is called turn-taking in conversation, how you actually organize uh, turn-taking. I mean, he says, as Goffman says, Conversation is taking turns at talking. Now, if, if it is taking turns at talking, um, there must be a, um, a traffic control system. And we haven't looked at the traffic control system very closely until really quite recently. Um, how do you actually indicate to another, I'm beginning to reach the end of my stretch of discourse, your turn's coming up. Um, there are all sorts of very subtle cadences, drops of voice which indicate message coming to an end, yours is now allowed to come in. There are all sorts of ways of holding people off raising the voice at the end of, you, know, you see how people start no, I want it, and you there just silence them no I haven't come to the end and so on and so forth now these are purely cognitive things they're not really to do with deep motivations they're to do with the daily structuring of interrelationships all that's going on in language studies now no one's looking at it in the theatre but and when you start to say that you're doing this then they say oh isn't that a bit pretentious uh, so I feel very much I feel rather defensive about it because uh um, and you know, rather encouraged to hear you say that you approve because usually it's thought to be a rather heavy thing to do, and you ought to be able to do it by intuition. I don't think you can do many things by intuition. Well, the interesting aspect of that is now we're talking about how meaning is covered up, yes, rather than how it's hidden to our form, yes, which is immensely valuable for an actor. Right? Mm. They're not about meaning, no, they are. This play itself is filled with uh, what uh, a lot of social psychologists call mixed messages. Someone is saying something in order to prevent you from hearing that they're saying something else. It's also filled with all these things which a lot of um, child psychologists are interested in, which is paradoxical imperatives. You are saying something in order to actually prevent someone from doing something which you, uh, or to, to, to insist on them doing something by denying something else. Makes um, you think how very advanced Chekhov was, really. 
Well, I think with a lot of a lot of great artists who listen carefully to conversation, they actually get it. They get it right. There's a wonderful moment, for example, a terribly sensitive moment in Three Sisters. I, I, someone I'm sure will correct me on this. In this second or third act, there's a scene when they're all sitting around having tea, and it's before the party starts to happen. And once, and Irina is at the back playing patience, and the doctor is saying something. He reads something out of a book and says, so and so and so and so was born in... That's right. That's right. That's right, actually. And um, uh, Irina unaccountably says it again. And what is happening, of course, is this very, very fascinating thing that happens when people are not doing anything, and that is intrusion. When you're not actually saying something, as as a perfectly idling thing, one finds oneself just there's no reason at all simply saying something which has been said by someone else, not because one's interested in it, but because it merely intrudes into the language stream of one's consciousness. And um, if you listen very carefully to this going on all the time, I remember, I remember once it was precisely the same thing happened, well not precisely, but an analogous thing happened. I was standing with my sister at an open window overlooking a sunlit scene in London. It must be 40 years ago. And we were looking at over at St. Paul's there in the sunset, this canaletto sunlight. And we've been, and we've been looking out at this for about 15 minutes, just quite suddenly, out of the blue, out of the blue she suddenly said, Anton Walbrook. <laughs> yes, and? No, no, I just, just I, <laughs> just said Anton Walbrook, that's all it, it came into my head, she said. Um, and I think this is another thing. Describe the references of the way about how you structure the time and Yeah. I um I'm very, very unstructured in my rehearsal, partly because I'm I'm very undisciplined and sloppy anyway. Um, and also because I've discovered as I've gone on, that the very organized rehearsal actually stifles invention. And that the, the, there's a curious double meaning in that word blocking. <laughs> when people are talking about blocking a play, I think you, you do very effectively do that. Um, and I don't really block things very much at all. I, let, I just get people on their feet and start saying, well, let's, let, let's start doing it. Let's start doing something. Then we have, uh, we'll, we'll read it through and read it through. Mm, perhaps several times. Uh, and then, then often... Uh, for no good reason, but no, certainly no regime, no uh, rationale. I'll just, just simply stop saying this is getting very tiresome. Let's uh, let's try and let's try and do some of it. Now, that's often done without discussion. I mean, we don't find out what the characters mean, or make very complicated questions of motive. I'll just simply say, look, I'll st- I'll, let's find out what they mean by hearing what they're saying and see what meanings start to come out through um, through the process of simply uttering the lines. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a great believer in the James Lang theory of the emotions, you know, that, that you find out what you mean as a result of the gestures which you find yourself doing when saying things, that, you know, that, that you feel angry because you tense your fists. And, and often, the mere, thing of, the mere experience of saying a line through at great speed discovers its meaning. Um, and you find inflections come to the surface merely um, through the process of speaking the lines. I often don't know what the play means until I've heard it. Um, and I think a lot of actors don't know what it means until they've spoken it. Um, 
That often gives me a purchase on the play. Then I can say, I find, oh, I think I know what's going on here. Isn't it interesting that the character might mean this? But when the thing starts out, I, can, I have very vague ideas about what the characters are. When you get to the first, well, several weeks, let's say, because an enormous play like this, yeah. and it becomes time to run a play, it's such a long play, how do you schedule such a thing? I ran the play through four days after we started the house. Um, have they all prepared the study of the very roughly, I said don't look at it too much because, because I don't want you starting with very clear ideas of how it ought to be. Let's find out how to do it by doing it. Um, so we read it through I think, once or twice. Once, I think. And then, you know, the first, actually, I think we only read it through once. <laughs> the time when we read it through was when I actually had cast it the first time, six months before we started rehearsal. Um, we ran through it just to hear how, just, just to make sure that everyone was right <laughs> vocally in relationship to one another. So we, either way, the read-through occurred as an instrumental device for finding out whether I had made the right choices. And then we stopped it and put it on ice, and then we came back six months later, when we were all ready to do the play. And then we did a bit of reading on the first day, if I remember rightly. Yes, we read a bit through the first day, and I said, well, well, let's, let's start doing it. And then we, we had a few bits of furniture around, and we walked around a bit. And I said, well, this is rough enough. And that's right. You go over there, you go over there, and where do, you want, where do you want to come from to do this? And gradually, things very vaguely appeared. And then, after five days, we were ready to run the play on our feet, with the books. Um, and it had a very general shape to it, um, which I suppose you could call blocking. Um, but it was very unblocked, in the sense that it wasn't... There were, there were negotiable, negotiable positions. And... I have a very, I mean, if you want a method, it's very similar to painting. I do believe in, in very, very generalized drawing of cartoons. Um, that what you do is you, you, you have a very, you, you put the thing up in very bold strokes with things sketched in in charcoal. You see vaguely, and you stand back, and you, that first run through with my standing back and seeing the whole thing. Then you rub lots out. You say, well, I think we'll put that in there. And you go on rubbing out and doing things until eventually it grows on the wall. And I think this happens a lot with painting anyway. When you've got to x-ray half the things in the metropolitan, you see that, you know, that, a, that a horse's haunch conceals an obliterated saint. Mm. Um, and that, that, that these things don't come by, by design. Gradually they emerge. And I'm very, very... I'm very slow-moving about it and very hesitant. Um, and certainly don't dictate very much. And then we'll have... I, very much direct by, through the medium of coffee break. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I get very exhausted by rehearsals which go on for longer than about half an hour. Um, and I say, that's quite enough of that. That's very boring. Let's, let's stop. Let's have coffee. And let's just chat. And we chat about something. And then something comes up about what happened previously. And I find that by backing into these things, by informal discussion, and then remaining on it during the course of the coffee break, Someone will say something about, hey, but I, don't you think it might be interesting if we said this this way? And then I'll say, oh, well, let's just try it. And then we'll go around to the corner of the table and then say, all right, well, let's read it through with the text. And we'll sit there reading it through like that. And suddenly, in the process of inadvertently reading it through, an inflection starts to emerge through the text, which none of us had ever anticipated. And then we say, that's terrific. And we pick it up out of the thing and then say, let's go back and do it. And do it with that little piece. So you mine the play for bits and pieces and you do this beachcombing business of, of, of doing it inadvertently. I find that the best rehearsals I've ever had, the most valuable moments of insight, have been when we've sat in the 
sometimes when we go into the theatre, by the time we're in the theatre, not actually up on the stage, but when, when three actors are sitting down in the first row, in, you know, their, their, their coats are up on the seat and they're sitting down there, um, there's an ashtray there and they're sitting, and the three people are rehearsing lines. And I will have my coffee cup and I'll go up and sit with them in the, with the intention of simply overhearing them speaking their lines. And in the process of their doing something else, which is merely trying to get their lines straight, they start to spill and leak things which actually are there in the text, which they discover inadvertently. And it's that wonderful thing that Polonius says in Hamlet, by, by, oh God, I can't talk, no, I'm sure you'll have the thing, it's by, 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 by indirections, find directions out. And the more I go on in the theatre, the more and more I discover that, that, that I find directions by indirections, that in, inadvertence. And I'll tell you one thing which bore this out in a both extraordinary, unexpected way. About a year ago, I made a documentary film about a man with Parkinson's disease, a very young man who had a very, very serious, a profound shaking palsy of a very, very disabling sort. It was um, very rigid and unable to do things. Now, the most interesting thing about Parkinson's disease, not so much the shape or indeed the rigidity, but the difficulty in starting. Um, he, he was unable to, to, for example, pick up the glass by going straight to it. But what he would do would be pretend to do something else and ricochet off what he was not intended to do, so that he would actually pretend not to do the glass and go... But if he went straight for the glass, he couldn't do it at all. And there is a strange wisdom built into that, that when, in fact, there are disabling uh, difficulties about doing something, the most valuable way of doing it is to pretend to do something else altogether and blunder up against what you have failed to approach by direction. Um, And one of the most disabling things about performance is actually doing it frontally, head-on, because it's actually very hard to pretend to be someone else. Uh, and very often, the best way to find out how to become someone else is actually to, to goof around and, and to pretend to be doing something altogether different, like doing it in an accent, or, or just doing it at speed. And I find that, that the rehearsal becomes more and more and more natural, and that my productions become more and more convincingly natural, when in fact I have practically no method at all, except the method, I think, which is very similar to psychoanalysis, which is vigilant listening for accidents. Uh, And gradually these pieces are put together, and you listen to them, that's nice, I think, hey, did you notice when you did that? And they say, here's the thing. And you start to build it out of these little bits and pieces. Um, Head-on assault upon meaning, head-on assault upon intention, motives. It's not in our gift to discover how to do something by directly finding out. I think we have to, we have to lurch into these mind shafts by accident. And the actors instinctively save what is valuable from those in a Yes, they do. The other actors build on Yeah. That's the feeling that gets them seen the They are enormously, this particular cast is wonderfully generous and affectionate uh, uh, to and about one another. 
And the result is that they are constant. Hey, they, they, they come off the stage. I see them each, each time now. And they say, hey, that was great what you did this evening. Are you, you know, it's, whereas usually, very often, very often you get this thing with that. Is that what you're going to do? <laughs> are you really going to do that? Uh, whereas uh, almost every time they said, hey, that was wonderful what you did then. We did that long pause. And, he, and so someone will say, I mean, Jack sometimes will say, that long pause was me going up. <laughs> and, and then someone will say, well, could you possibly go up again like that? <laughs> Um, and I think a lot of what happened very early on came about, uh, first of all, because they're very nice people who like, do trust each other, and they're not trying to compete. They know that they're, they will work because, in fact, it's collective, and the sum of their performances, uh, and that the outcome is more than the sum of their individual parts. And they are very attentive to each other's spillages, yeah. their leakages, that the, un- the, the, in- the inadvertent and the unintended they know is actually where the treasures are. And they will, they will very rapidly glean each other's um, unexpected uh, and unintended production. There's a question over yep. there. Do you think because you them to it, or just No, I do give them to it, because I, 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 I create, I think, a very convivial circumstance in my rehearsals, in that I don't alarm anyone, I don't frighten anyone, I don't bully them, and I never, never humiliate anyone. And that's actually a very important thing. I do say, I do say that very much, but I do think there are directors who take pleasure in actually showing everyone else that they're the boss, who don't like the contributions made by the actors. I think it's, and I think it's, I think it's all their contribution. You only, what you do is like a, like a good analyst. You, you create an atmosphere in which someone feels um, confident enough and at ease enough to spill what they've got inside them. But did you they became very, very aware of it very early on because I did talk to them about. They, I think, a lot of them remarked about how, how unexpected this was as a form of rehearsal. They'd expected much more um, regimentation and I think much more, well, if not dictatorial, they'd expected, you know, um, strokes of direction which indicated how things were going to go. And I think that they, they did ask me questions about how, how uh, I arrived at this method of rehearsal. And so you used some of the vocabulary? I did start, I started to use it. I mean, it's partly to do with having been a doctor. You know, you know if the most important thing, if you're going to become, if you're going to be, as you know, the most important point part of the diagnosis is the history. And the best history is always got when you are extremely uh, tolerant and very gentle in your questions, but you actually let the patient tell you the story. Again, narration and listening is very, very important. And how they actually how they spill it, spilling the beans. It's a very interesting phrase about telling information, spilling the beans. Um, the notion of inadvertence. And I learned very early on when I was a doctor, when I was listening to patients, that the best way was to be ex- not to be peremptory in your questions, not to have a fixed roster of questions. You have to get all the questions out sometime or another because there are certain things that have to be asked. You know, how long did the pain go on? When did it start? Is it related to effort? Is it related to food? Is it, you know? and, but, but when you get really good at it, all those questions come in the course of what is actually a very convivial conversation between two people, one of whom happens to be a doctor and one of whom happens to be a patient. And exactly the same way, I think, probably the process of direction. You really have to lose very early on any sharply distinguished role patterns of I'm the director and therefore what I say goes, you're the actors, and what 
uh, uh, used to do what I say. Uh, sloppiness and inadvertence. Uh, I do think it's terribly important. And it's, just, it's, also, it's fun, it's much nicer to do that. And also, I do think the jokes are very important. I mean, you're asking around, and it's, it's quite important. Chekhov said that when he got fed up with his wife, he slept with his mistress concerning his medicine, job. Yes. So I think your uh, your wife and mistress get on awfully well. Together, well, I do, I, I've never thought the medicine and medicine and the no. theatre were very different. No, I they, see they've that. always been the same. Um, and I've seen in my colleagues in medicine what I've also seen and criticised in my colleagues in the theatre that both being a director and being a doctor give you willy nilly an authority which is terribly easy to abuse because you get, you get people in a subordinate position and you have to you have to be willing to totally junk that notion of, of rank and subordination and and really simply act as a as a chairman of the committee um, and you stand outside the thing with with, with an ear open which they can't all hear at all um, but it's it's something which I when I in a way I partly exploited a uh, a fault in my personality that I'm, very, I'm rather disorganised I, I wouldn't if someone said to me I remember the first time I ever worked with Olivier when I did The Merchant of Venice with him oh, it must be 20 years ago and I came in the first day of rehearsal and you know he wanted to see the board with the pins and the, and the lines where he was going to go and I said I'm sorry I haven't got any of these things at all and he was you know I could see that he was rather disturbed by this he thought that, he, that he'd taken on an awful young punk who really didn't know what he was doing um uh, he gradually realized that there was something very productive about this very sloppy way of going about it. And also, every now and then you have to, when you're dealing with an actor like that, and also when you're dealing with any actors, you have to have some gifts to give, some, some real nice presents. Um, and if you have about four or five of these presents to give them in the course of rehearsal, uh, a really good idea they'll go along with all this. And with Olivier, I, I remember doing the merchant, having two really good prezies to give him, which, which really persuaded him this was the best way of going about it. When we did the scene where uh, Tubal tells him that one of Antonio's ships has gone down, he was looking around for something. He loves big moments and spectacular, sort of strange things to do, which, which will be made very memorable screams, fits, falling backwards off tables, something or other. And he said, he said, we must think of something here. And I said, well, have you, if you want to exult at this moment, do you remember that wonderful little newsreel of Hitler in the railway carriage of Compiègne when the French surrendered uh, to him in 1940? You remember he did this mad jig? I said, I'll run the film for you. Go and look at that film. And do that jig. And there'll be something so ironic about um, a, uh, a Jewish character <coughs> doing the dance that Hitler did in the comedy. He, and he loved it. You see? <laughs> and then I said to him, well, later on, <coughs> he wanted to have something for the entry when, when uh, he discovers Jessica's flight. You knew. And I said to him there, look, look she's gone from the house. She's taken everything. Taking the jewels, she's taken her clothes, she's taken the one thing, of course, she wouldn't have taken is the one that she'd left behind, which is her women's clothes, because she's gone out and dressed as a man. I said, why don't you come down from her bedroom with her dress in your hands, and it'll, it'll be a marvellous sort of reminiscent memory of, of Leah with Cordelia, the dead body of Cordelia. And he said, oh, dear boy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then it was... So you have to have a present, you see, if, if you can give them. And there was some... I, I was able to give one or two 
presents to the actors for this time. I mean, I remember one, there was one which, which Bethel adored. And from then on, she, you know, she, she lent herself to this very sloppy method of rehearsal. I mean, we, when, do you remember when she says the, the, the Hail Mary? There were two things I said. I said, first of all, don't, do, don't give us a recitation of that damned Hail Mary, because no one, no Catholic ever says the Hail Mary, except the Hail Mary, because then we know it off by heart, and it just becomes a sort of, it's a, it's a rotor thing, as it goes, they take the beads from, I said, do it very fast, and do it twice, um, to see if, you know, in other words, you're knocking on the door of the Virgin Mary, and the first one doesn't work, see if the second one gets her attention, it won't. And then I said to her at the end, why don't you actually address the Virgin Mary directly on the subject of how difficult it is to know what the right dosage is when you start again? Um, so because usually it's done as a soliloquy, you know, it's always so difficult when you when you're starting again to know the right dose. And I said, just tell tell the Virgin, she'll understand. Um, but it's very difficult to get the right dose. And you know, when, when I had to try and imagine the Virgin saying, "Yes, I know, dear, it is very much." <laughs> and and, it, and it should, from that on, all sorts of things leaked out from that suggestion. So you, if you give one or two presents like that, then. And you know, you, you, know, you can't be entirely sloppy and inadvertent. Every now and then, there's got to be a little positive thing, uh, but in the form of a of a present. You know, we could keep you here all night, but it's really no. tight, so we ought to stop. Well, Mr. Miller, thank you. Thank you very much. Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members. Visit us on the web at www.ssdc.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theater. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.